Hey, welcome everybody to episode 6 of Framing the Shot. I'm your host, Jonathan Leiter, also known as Filmmaker Jay, and sitting across from me is my co-host, Cotton Chivarelli. Hello! So it's been about two years since we posted our last episode, not just due to the impact of COVID-19, but we are back, and I hope for a good while yet. You might notice the format is a little different. I decided to do away with the formal narration at the front end in favor of a more casual opening. And if it hasn't premiered already, we are working on a new intro to expand on those sound effects you normally hear. So for our first episode back, Cotton and I have decided to start a new sub-series here on the show where we would document our thoughts on the films we picked for our latest movie marathon, which has become a regular ritual of ours. About once a month, we pick out a weekend and we watch eight movies across two days. Usually I pick four and he picks the other four, and we try to pick out films that neither of us has ever seen, or at least films that the other hasn't seen or uh, that we think they should. What would you say are some highlights of the past marathons, Cotton? Oh, well, without a doubt, um, the instant highlight I always go to is when you convinced me to watch Orlando. That movie just blew me away, if we're talking just in general. Um, I remember, not that I had low expectations for the movie, but, you know, you look at the cover and you really don't think much of it. It's pretty pretty simple looking, nothing, nothing too special about it or anything like that. Um, but it's as if Lawrence of Arabia and Albert Nobbs had a baby. That's <laughs> the best way to describe it. And that is, that is somewhat apt, yeah. And I recommend it to everybody. Uh, the Another, I think... Um, another really powerful moment for me was, and this is, I have to take some credit here. This is one that I suggested because usually you win in the department of interesting movies. But when I decided <laughs> that we were going to watch uh, The Innocence, that was a real oh, yes. unheard of gothic horror that I picked based on a recommendation from another friend of mine. And it, it really was, it was shocking how scary it still was. Right. For, for, um, a black and white ghost movie, it's better than the original Haunting. I still have not seen the original 13 Ghosts, and uh, I've seen a, a House on Haunted Hill, which I, I guess there really wasn't a ghost in that one. It was just more strange happenings, and you didn't know if they were real or not. Um, but yeah, The Innocence, for a genuinely creepy movie, did wonderfully. Another movie of ours I really, really, really enjoyed was The Ipcris File. Uh, it really was this great espionage, fun sort of British espionage movie that really you hadn't heard of, and it was just awesome. Oh, and another little credit I have to take was when I proved to you that the best version of The Murder on the Orient Express was a made-for-TV movie. Well, I, I wasn't in any... I, I, I guess I was in slight doubt... No, yeah, I was probably in slight doubt just because the lower budget and I was expecting diminished visual quality, mm. I think, was was the thing that I picked up from at least seeing footage of that episode. Because I love the Poirot that I've seen up till now. I think I've seen selections from every season up through season six of that show. Mm -hmm. And Murder on the Orient Express was from one of the more recent seasons in the mid-2000s and yeah you were right the uh the presentation of this story 
was probably the most personal that we've seen Poirot from the other versions. It was um, vulnerable in his case, much more vulnerable than the other ones. So yeah, I have to agree with Orlando. That was something uh, incredibly special. I loved the dreamlike approach to not only the voiceover narration the whole time and the cinematography, but also kind of the stream of consciousness approach to the editing and changing from these different eras in his life. Um, I seem to recall a lot of fog and blue-tinted lighting, which I really liked that added to that dreamlike atmosphere. Absolutely. Uh, Director's Cut, starring Penn Jillette, was a, a really fun ride through madness. Uh, as some, th- uh, some have pointed out about it, it has a similar vibe to Red Letter Media's reviews of Star Wars um, with Harry S. Plinkett, because he's commentating about this film and he's got that really greasy, slimy persona that's uncomfortable to be around. Mm-hmm. And of course, he kidnaps an actress to be in his remix of this movie. So he's, he steals, like, the. I think he was part of the set. He got on the set, and he somehow stole the film footage, then well, kidnapped they, the actress. They made him, like, he did a Kickstarter thing where he gave a ton of money to it, and he was able to be a producer, so he was allowed on the set. There you go. So, yeah, he, he stole, like, the, the rushes or something. Yeah. And then, um, so, yeah, it's a black comedy because you recognize how dark and horrible the situation is, yet how absurd and funny this guy who's a fan of this actress and he got on the set, donated all that money and he's attempting to recut the film to his vision. And I, the, the spot that really, I think I laughed out loud when he pasted his head on a green screen on top of another actor. That was great. <laughs> um, and it was, um, was it Penn or Teller? It was Penn as the main guy, but Teller showed up as, a really slimy, I think he was a drug dealer within the film. Mm. He was an actor playing a drug dealer in the film. And it was, I think it's the only time on camera he's spoken other than in uh, the documentary he made. Mm. Which that's one we could have watched, uh, Tim's Vermeer. I've heard it's fantastic. It's stunning because mm. it's, it's, it's a guy figuring out how to paint like a master because he realized he makes a, a scene that looks like the painting inside of a small set. And then he puts a, he turns a little room off to the side into a shadow box with a pinhole and the pinhole projects onto a little mirror that's set above the canvas. And so you look at this little image and then you look to the side, you start painting exactly what you're seeing. Okay. So that part's that color he matches the colors to that spot, paints it in. It's like paint by numbers, but the lines aren't there. And he's untrained. He's not an artist. He's just copying this real image onto the canvas, just doing it all by eye. And doesn't it, it like matches up perfectly, right? It does. It looks authentic. That's insane. The other film that really stood out, and I want to say we, we have done this five times. Today was the sixth. And a lot of the films I do forget because obviously we've we've must have watched thirty five. Well, wait. You said how many times have we done this? I'm pretty sure the spy one was five. Okay, so yeah, we've at this point. Which I think it was six, seven, 
six, eight, and eight. Then yeah, you're right. You're, that's I think I'm not good at math, but <laughs> um, I believe you. So yeah, the other film that stood out to me out of all the marathons we've done is I gotta hand it to Alejandro Jodorowsky for um, <laughs> for creating uh, Holy Mountain. Yeah, because it was the most mesmerizing and the most uncomfortably sexualized movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Which uh, and and the film I can I can forgive it and admire it for that because it is both a biting commentary on and a deconstruction of all world religions um, in all its forms, cultural touchstones. And yet it's a movie that actually made me feel like I've gone through a transcendent experience watching these people do all these weird, bizarre things, uh, tantamount to flogging themselves for the purpose of trying to ascend to another plane of existence, only to realize that, oh yes, you're still on a film set. All of this is fake. You mentioning that reminded me of a movie we watched in that same marathon, which you did not like, but I loved. And I admit it's one that I made you watch. And that's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and her lover. Mm-hmm. I have to fully admit, I watched <sighs> it. <laughs> that bad? <laughs> yes. That bad? That bad. I, I, I have a strong stomach for many things. I can forgive things that I see in films. That was very early on uncomfortable for me. And by the end, I was like, oh, wow, that was a... That was a trip. That was an endurance test. Here's my thing about it. Production design off the chain. Like really. <laughs> yes. It was. Yes. It was really good. Because they do all those transitions between the walls of the set. And like not only is the lighting different, but they enhance the lighting by having everyone's costumes change to the color of the lighting. Which I, I've not seen that done in another movie. I... I want to say Wes Anderson did something similar, but I don't know where. That is very possible. That sounds like a Wes Anderson thing. But let me tell you, you agree that this did, this did not look like a Wes Anderson movie at all. It was, a, it was on the level, though. It, was, it had moments where it could have been. But the lighting was nothing like it. The lighting no. was much more intense. Wes and- Anderson is, is like pastel paintings. They're all high key. There's no serious contrast except in very specific shots but the other reason why i liked that movie so much is i started looking into this director's other work the director's name being uh peter greenaway yes he's widely considered to be this sort of outsider british director who is often given some pretty impressive budgets at times Mm. but he's He's won a bafta and his films have been nominated for oscars but he's never won an oscar he's one of those um, but I saw two of his movies after that, that one of which I thought was just okay. And it was, um, pillow book. It was, it was interesting. It was weird. I basically walked up to the guy to, I asked someone who worked at the video store I li- or the DVD rental shop I live near. And I said, what's your, what's your favorite movie by this guy? I just watched cook thief wife and his and her lover. 
what he recommended. He recommended Pillow Book. Wasn't as into it. But then I watched his more famous movie called Night Watching. That's a movie where Martin Freeman, of all people, plays Rembrandt. And it's fantastic. Oh, right. Yeah, I've seen a trailer for that. It's very good. I do recommend it. It's it's in a similar style as Cook, Thief, Wife, and Her Lover in the sense that it's this one continuous thing mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to stop. Yeah. But it works just as well. Has fantastic performances, really cool designs. It does drive in the whole you're watching a play thing more than Cook, Thief, Wife, and Her Lover. Mm-hmm. And that's because Cook, Thief, Wife, and Her Lover looks like a film adaptation of a play. And this lo- and, and Night Watching looked more like a play itself. Okay. Um, both great. Both really good. But yes, I had to mention that one as well because... That actually I, makes a lot of sense that he made that. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I have been told he did a, a weird interpretation of Othello that is very odd but very good. So eventually I'll give that a try. But he's just a weird British director who knows exactly what he wants. So as you probably noticed from the episode title, for our sixth movie marathon and the first that we're actually putting on the podcast, rather than pick films open-endedly, I had the idea to pick films based on a theme because I really wanted to see more spy films, and that's why we had seen The Ipcris File. Um, And that same marathon, we saw uh, The Spy That Comes In From The Cold. Yes, and Three Nights of the Condor. Uh, Three Days of the Condor. Wow. Three Days of the (laughs) Condor, and I really liked that one too. Yes, and that was the day, uh, no, the next day. I showed you Dr. Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine, which is no joke. It's not on my top 10, but it's in my top 20. I have no problem believing that whatsoever. <laughs> and I mean that both as a compliment and a slight diss at the same time. I truly do. Well, it, I haven't seen enough Vincent Price movies, but it is probably my favorite performance so far because he's, he's just glowing in that movie with so much cheese. That's true. He is. So because we did that, I, I got off onto this kick of figuring out movie marathon theme lists. I've got one on the Russian Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and the American Revolution kind of all wound up together in 60 years there. I've got one for gods and angels that come down to Earth to visit humankind. I've got one brewing for time travel. You had wanted to see Westerns at some point, so I made a whole list on that. I also got to say, if any of anyone else out there is struggling to find truly interesting and original concepts or premises in the films they watch, researching films by theme or subgenre has actually proven really eye-opening. And there's this really great website I stumbled upon called bestsimilar.com, and I don't know how many films they must have on here, but you look up any tag word, you look up any film, there's a long list of suggestions beneath it that have similar elements to them, similar topics, similar names, similar time periods. It was so helpful. But again, for for the sixth one, we wanted to cover documentaries. And originally we were going to pick four each, but... Cotton laid it over on my lap to uh, figure out what we were going to see because we had to move our podcast to my house for a change so we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to go to Videodrome. We were going to do it blind picks, 
which would have been interesting because Videodrome, which is here in Atlanta, they have three big shelves full of documentaries. And I thought, you know what? We got to come back here and just sift through those. And I argue if we do another round of documentaries further down the line, that's exactly what we do. I definitely want to do that for other stuff, too. Like, mm. it, it, there, I want to leave some themes off the list so we can just walk up to, like, the B-movie horrors and go, yeah, vampire women from Mars, zombies suck my blood, we got to pick those off. I'm dating a <laughs> werewolf, what? <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, exactly. So once I did my usual research, because I, I had to hop into research at short notice, I figured out the eight films that we were going to cover. And I even found some um, shorts that I hope we can cover tomorrow that I found on shortoftheweek.com. I believe that's the name. And you just got to look at the titles, look at the log lines, and say to yourself, does that sound interesting? Do I want to devote 12, 15 minutes to that? Yeah, I do. So maybe we'll catch those tomorrow to, to fill out our critiques a bit more. But uh, what are the, the main eight films we're going to cover, Cotton? So... The main eight, in no particular order, are Hoop Dreams, The Imposter, Electric Boogaloo, The Untold Story of the Canon Films, The Queen, Into the Inferno, Dig, with an exclamation point, Lovers and the Despot, and Koineskatsi. It's a hard one to say, isn't that it? That one's tough. <laughs> yeah, I've actually... I want to say I've wanted to see Koyane Skatsi for probably since 2013 when I first learned about it. Because I, I almost want to say that our documentary uh, professor mentioned them at some point. Mm -hmm. And if not, I would have figured out about it from doing other research at the time. But I figured if we're going to do a documentary weekend, that has to be on it to, yeah. to give myself a reason to finally see it. Absolutely. So yeah, everybody, um, we're going to head off now, pop in a few shorts and our first four films, and then we will be back in a jiff. See ya. So the first film on our list is a 33-minute short called Time Lapse of the Universe. And this is something that I've wanted to show Cotton since before the pandemic. There just never seemed to be a good time to trot it out on them. But it's made by, I, I want to say uh, they were a musical composer first. And then they started doing three, 3D CGI visuals put to their music and then eventually expanded into making more documentary-like subject matter about uh, astronomy, astrophysics, and now they're doing shorts about alien life. And they're probably the most visually stunning YouTube-based short films I've ever seen. And that's even going up against that uh, one series of shorts about uh, Warhammer 40, 40K? Yes, yes. Which are also quite stunning. Yeah. So it, it's by a guy uh, named Melody Sheep, or at least the channel's called Melody Sheep. And Time Lapse of the Universe is... It's shocking once you, once you get to the end. Because it's all about... 
literally the death that the the universe will go through from today through a billion trillion 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 years it was something insane like that but the visuals in it were so well orchestrated and it went into such depths of ideas and concepts that we'll never live to see like we're not going to witness the sun turn and go supernova and turn into a white dwarf and turn into a white dwarf we're not going to watch black holes power other planets we're not going to see that but it gave a great visual reference for it like it literally used cgi in an awesome way to show it yeah and it, it's it's not realistic cgi that's the thing because I think if you made it too realistic, it would, you wouldn't get how bizarre it really is. Because trying to show off what multiple universes look like, they'd, they'd be amorphous bubbles with nothing in them because the stars would be so small. So they had to make larger stars and masses of nebulae in there to, to show that off. And then when you talk about Hawking radiation coming off the, the black holes, you have to you know, make these particle strands splitting off into the ether. But yeah, it, it, what's really crazy is you get to the, the destruction of all stars in the universe really early. Oh yeah, that's just tip of the iceberg. It then becomes this whole, well, here's how the darkness becomes infinite darkness. And here's how when you think it's over, it's not actually over. It's actually just beginning. And you basically realize that what we're in is just the beginning of the, the timeline of the universe, which is both reassuring and scary at the same time, because <laughs> it's kind of like, well, when you learn that like it doesn't really matter, are you reassured or are you terrified? And the answer is kind of both. It was something like life will exist in the universe for only a one of a billionth, 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 billionth of a percent. And then the majority of the universe's life will be dark and will be inhabited by black holes. But throughout it, I think to keep the hope going, they said, well, it would be possible to sustain energy for possible life in these ways, in these ways. And that was like through just a touch under half the video. Yeah. And then after a while, they're like, well, now life will be truly impossible. So they tried to sustain it. It's like, look, if we get good enough at it, we'll be able to... Make it. You could you could have a, I don't know if they would like put a planet somehow around a black hole or move to a planet that's there, but It'd they be would be a giant crazy space station thingy mabob that would use suck the energy out of whatever way they had energy available. Yeah, I know that was the most unscientific way that was suggested, but truly that's what they seem to say is that as long as we have a way to harness said energy, we'll last a good while longer. And I. I especially loved that idea that everything will be dark for trillions upon trillions of years. And then suddenly when the black holes start to die, it's giant beams of light in the darkness that go for billions of light years. Yeah. Just suddenly, bam, there's a burst of light in nothingness. I also like how the everything they were depicting was happening faster and faster and faster even though it was basically saying that those things that were happening faster in the video were going to take more and more years. Yes. What it does is at the very bottom of the screen, you see 
what the time scale is. So it goes up year, year one, year two, year three, year four. Then it goes up by decades. Then very quickly, uh, centuries, millennia gets up to millions, billions, trillions of years. And then it, every time it switches to a new term, a new, you know, millions, billions, trillions, you see the numbers go up slowly because now it's counting entire trillions of years by one, two, three, four, five. And then once it starts rapidly going through millions, then it switches to the next rung. And now it's going one, two, three, four. But that's... It was insane. God, the time scales are ast- literally astronomical. Yeah. They're... What's the word I'm looking for? You know what? There is no word I'm looking for. It's just... <laughs> there is no word for this. There is no word for this. There aren't enough... You could take every word in the dictionary and the black hole would evaporate. It would suck it up completely. So, yeah, I, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to give like a verdict... Or oh, a, a, sure. a general consensus, but in terms of subject matter and presentation, what did you think of that? Well, in terms of presentation, it was great. I actually, I will be sending this this short to some of my friends specifically. Like there, I I have some people who are very optimistic and very pessimistic, and they'll both love it equally for very <laughs> different reasons. So I very mu- I I will be sharing this one because it's. It's just a total delight, without a doubt. Um, I would say I did... This was deeply fascinating for somebody who loves astronomy documentaries and astrophysics. Like, I I love anything talking about uh, Voyager or the other probes going around planets. I love anything that talks about what's in what's in the core of Jupiter what's down in those clouds or what what's going on with Titan and Enceladus and um, Europa and IO like the the ice fields of Europa basically the the moons that are just insane yeah and then I love anything that talks about like the the birth and death of stars in the nebulae like f- seeing how that functions is fascinating so this was a treat uh, but I would say that the follow-up uh, all about alien life is even more fascinating because the the creator of these videos is getting more advanced with his animation and his renderings. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't do any creature or character animation. He actually manages to not have to do that. It's a lot of renderings of creatures in, like, statuary. Interesting. And then very interesting landscapes with maybe some water simulations. Okay. He hasn't moved up to character animation yet but i imagine for part three he might do that wow that'll be amazing but yeah overall i i was blown away by it like i I know it's just a simple thing to say but it's the truth i was blown away i absolutely loved it i'm glad you finally showed it to me all right so that was our our first short let's see what our first proper full-length documentary is going to be So like I said in the beginning, I had known about Koyani Skatsi for almost nine years, and we finally got around to it. We both finally got around to it. Yeah. And I had, uh, there's another film called Samsara, which you might learn about from some YouTube videos about like the top 10 most beautiful uh, cinematography in film, 
or uh, either it's cinema cartography or maybe it's um, every frame is a painting. I think they both mention Samsara. And there's it, another film called Baraka made by the same director. Right. And they're apparently and, very similar. Right. And they're very stunning films. And there, there are a lot of comparisons that you can make between those and the Katsi trilogy. But as I found out, they are very different approaches to the kind of the same building blocks. Samsara is a film that wants to take you on a journey and sort of like, I kind of imagine it like a father lifting up a child and plopping him into a new playpen mm -hmm. with new pictures on the walls. Here, son, I want you to explore this land for a bit. Mm. And then like uh, five minutes later, okay, now you're going to explore this land for a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all, it's a, a little bit like uh, Soren in Epcot Center, too. You, you're, mm. you're getting on a ride, and you're experiencing a world that's, that rotates and changes every few moments. Mm -hmm. And you're there to experience that moment until the film whisks you away to somewhere else. But you are meant to feel like you're in this place experiencing it for that period that it's on screen. Mm. And you're meant to be drawn in literally by the eyes of the, the natives that the director photographs because the, he like rests the camera on them uh, and they stare into the camera for a little while. Just kind of... And I don't know how to describe it. Like it, it's... Their eyes are drawing you in and then you, you get to see them in their elements. And I think the film starts with... It's not Mongolia. What's that... Where's the Dalai Lama? Tibet? Yeah. I think the film starts in Tibet with the Tibetan monks making a, um, a chalk painting mm. very carefully. Yeah. It's, it's them scraping with rods on colored chalk, making this intricate mosaic that they immediately wash away with their, their robes mm -hmm. once it's done. Which, as beautiful as that is, that would drive me nuts. It's yes. Because like, I've seen how beautiful it ends up being, but it's just like, really? You're going to get rid of it? Well, it's probably going to blow away in the wind anyway. True. So it, it's, it's, it's like it's a ritual. It, it could be a cathartic ritual. No, I get that. But at the same time, I'm like, <clears throat> ugh, it's been all that time. But no, I get it. It's all about the impermanence of life or something like that, if I yeah. guess. I get that. So there's that film's approach to what is essentially a like a travelogue film. They went to something like 40 different countries, major landscapes, major natural formations, mountains, rainforest, you you name it. Koyani Skatsi is the opposite approach to to what is essentially capturing footage of stuff and putting music to it. But it's not meant to draw you in. It's really meant to distance you and decouple you from what you're looking at so that you have a much more objective relationship with it. And it's, it's kind of like um, a man or God looking down at an anthill where you're just meant to observe things happening and see what places look like. And it, it's, uh, it's footage from all across America. doesn't actually go to any other countries. Mm -hmm. So you see visions of um, cityscapes, some of the most beautiful cityscapes I've ever seen in a film, frankly. Um, 
lots of cars, lots of car speed lines from all of the like the light lot trails. A lot of factories. A lot of factories, assembly lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually made a list of what all is in the film. Um, okay, yeah. I did want to point this out. The film begins by you watching a fuselage from a rocket that exploded tumbling through the air for like five minutes. It's Challenger, right? Am I crazy? No, because this was four years before Challenger. Oh. It would have been real bad taste to use Challenger in this film. Oh, I... Okay, fully admitting up until you just said that because I didn't put together the timeline... I legit thought they were using Challenger footage, which I thought was very weird. So no, I think was a, this was a this was a this was a straight it. tube rocket. It didn't even have boosters or the the okay. shuttle on it, okay. and I think it was an unmanned rocket. Thank you. I want to say okay, that's better. But yeah, you you kind of know what film you're what kind of film you're going into when the first five minutes of it is watching one thing tumble slowly through the air. Because I I feel like I've seen other films that do that. Well, and whenever I s- the same ilk. Whenever so, here's something I want to quickly say about this film. I felt like Indiana Jones because I wanted to look at that movie, point at it, and go, "It belongs in a museum." <laughs> Where it's like it, it feels more like it's a display piece. Yes, that's it's something you could thing, put in the in an art museum as a a, pr- a special presentation. If you put this in MoMA, I wouldn't think twice. No, yeah, I'd absolutely. Be like, oh, that's part of this, and that's fine, and. I'll let you get back to what you're saying because it had some beautiful imagery. But there's, it's watching this like affirm my reason for waiting so long is because, for the record, in case we didn't make it clear, it has no plot at all. Nope. Neither does Samsara. Neither does Samsara. That's the point. Neither do any of these movies. And well, I'll make, I'll get, I'll get into this a little later, but just. If anyone's interested in watching this, which I do recommend, understand you are watching it for a purely educational purpose. Yeah, it's it's a time capsule of 1982, basically. Yeah, actually, a really good one, but yeah. So some of the other things we see in this is um, like there's circuit boards being made and they're compared to the cityscapes. You got car speed lines, TVs blowing up. I don't know what the hell that was from. Um, grocery stores, a Twinkie factory, turnstiles, car assembly lines. In some cases, we see assembly lines. Uh, we, we go back to the same ones. We see like um, hot dogs being made, and then we see them being packaged into the plastic with their wrappers around them. Yeah. And we see uh, ham being sliced, and then the stacks being moved on later. We see the Twinkies three times. But I think you're leaving out one key factor. A lot of this footage was all in reverse. Not all. No, it, I, I'm pretty sure it all was. Now, maybe some shots the director got decided, I don't need to do those in reverse. Hmm. But I want to say that every single shot, after a while, you realize is going in reverse. Yeah. The moment you see people move, you're like, oh, they're going backwards. And it's a, it takes you a minute to catch on, but yeah. And it, that's really the crux of what makes this a film that is you're meant to be distanced from the subject matter. Because if it was going in forward motion as normal, 
And something else it does is it speeds up the footage or slows it down on top of being reversed. And sometimes overlays it with other stuff. Yeah. Rarely. That's that's less common in this movie, but it does it a couple times. The the double exposure? Yeah. Yeah. There was a few shots of double exposure. But yeah, it reverses the footage and it either speeds it up or slows it down to further, further distance you from it. Because now it it doesn't feel human. You aren't recognizing it as human because everyone's moving unnaturally. And because it's going faster, you you don't feel the any naturalistic movement even in reverse. So it you're you're totally removed from it. I I, I want to say the only moments where I'm not removed from it is just the pure nature shots of Monument Valley and the um, Grand Canyon. Mm. Yeah. Because those shots last longer. They're in, they're in the part of the film that decides to go slower movement. Because mm-hmm. halfway through the film, it goes slower. And then the very end, it ramps back up speed. Yeah. The one last element, the cherry on top, to, to really hammer home that you're meant to be an observer here, is not only is the film in reverse, and not only is the film sped up half the time, the music is in reverse. So I got to, that got to me. And this is my, unfortunately, this might be my biggest criticism of the movie. So it was basically throat chanting in reverse. Yeah, yes. For an hour and a half. (laughs) And I do want to kind of give you an example of what this sounds like. So the through the whole first five minutes that we mentioned of the fuselage tumbling in space, it's actually, it's tumbling backwards. You don't realize it at first because there's no context clues. But once you start seeing the flames suck back into the rocket, it's tumbling backwards upwards until the explosion sucks back into itself and then the rocket lands back on Earth. And that whole five minutes, all you hear is but because you know it you can tell it because you can usually tell when audio is in reverse it just sounds it's it's you hear the looping of it yeah and it makes it very creepy while you're watching what you quickly realize is this shuttle that's exploding but in reverse right so then you're and there's something very unsettling about that after a while mm-hmm. and although i have to admit i liked it i guess that's where we might disagree a little bit for me it creeped, definitely it creeped me out a little bit i'm watching this and it, i just found it very creepy and yeah i just found it creepy <laughs> i did I, I don't have any other way to put it because it gets a little creepier once it starts going fast and like rapid pace because then it has this merry-go-round rhythm to it, you know? And it gets, yeah, that, that's part of it too. That being said, there are some key, there's some key imagery in that that I thought was incredible. I think the most famous shot in that movie is a shot of this, it's, you get about half the shot of this office building and the moon, and it's the moon is massive in it. And like you're going from night to day in it. Yeah. 
and you're just getting this shot of these lights blinking in the building because it's, you know, it's offices being turned on and off all night while the moon just slowly, ominously moves through the frame. That really put me in my place, <laughs> so to speak. You will enjoy this film. Well, the, actually, any of the shots of the office buildings were great. Yes. The other shot that really got to me in a good way was there's a moment in the movie where it's at a car manufacturing plant where it's the car's being put together in reverse, so it's really they're taking things apart. And there's this thing where it... I quickly realized that it is a car, but it looked a little humanoid-esque. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, point is, I saw a face in the thing they were working on. Was it that that weird thing hanging with yeah. the red yeah. dot in the middle? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a face in it, and when I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. So then it was like I, I it was like I was watching they were them making a robot or a person or something like that. And it was so weird, but enticing like that. That's one of the, that's like this movie has successfully burned some images into my brain. And the, the ones I've mentioned so far are absolutely in it. Like, so that's the strength of this movie is it will guarantee that some of this, what could be perceived as mundane imagery will never leave your brain ever. No, I don't, I don't think so. And that's that's where this movie shines. Where this movie weakens is just for me how watching this movie is a little bit like doing homework. <laughs> you need to do it. You have to do it. And I recommend doing it. But it's like eating your vegetables. You just got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I almost wish we would have seen it in uh, our documentary class at SCAD. That would have been a, a nice change of pace to not just have documentaries interviewing people or being voyeuristic it's well this is voyeuristic but it's not just like following people around and not even asking them questions we're just documenting their lives this is documenting society yeah <laughs> yeah the all of its ephemera iconography culture and national landmarks yeah uh the only other thing i want to mention is this is not the first movie to do this. Well, yes and no. Basically, you go back far enough and you actually, the earliest film that's like this is called uh, Man with a Movie Camera. It's a Soviet-era movie where, again, there's no plot, but it's just a day in the life in a Russian city. But what is genius about it is that Man with a Movie Camera messes with editing in a, in a brilliant way and splices images in a really cool way. Uh, most notably at one point you have a cameraman recording facing he's facing the audience but he's on top of a city perfectly and they just spliced it together just right another example is they have these train cars colliding with each other these street cars sorry colliding with each other perfectly but it's just all been spliced together or another image is when it's um, an eye and the iris of a camera blinking and moving succinctly quite well. But it's it's there's no plot to this movie. The difference is Koryas say it. What is it? Koyani Skatsky. I'm never gonna get that right. Koyana Skatsky Gatsky does not explain what you're in for. It just does it. Man with a movie camera has this whole 
opening title sequence explaining what you're going to experience. It says, you are going to witness an experiment of cinema. There is no plot, no character, no protagonist, no villain, things like that. Yeah. You are witnessing uh, a day in the life from sunrise to sunset, and that's it. So that's really the main difference, is that one, you're ready for it, the other, you're not. You know what's funny? is It's not just because that's a silent film, which I don't think you mentioned. No, I didn't. Um, I recently saw... I believe it's German. It's called Vampire. Mm. It's from uh, 32. And it's not a silent film, but it's almost treated like one because the characters don't speak a whole lot. And you have title cards every so often, at the at least at the early stages, telling you exactly why the main character is arriving in this town that he finds creepy. Because uh, he's into the occult, and yet he finds the people around him strange and bizarre, and he eventually realizes that there's a, a an ancient vampire um, feeding on people, and he uh, starts snooping around the town and sees shadows moving on their own, and th- and weird things like that. Mm. So it 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 it's a film that uh, outright tells you what's happened before we get to the main character arriving in this town and then it tells you what he's thinking in between scenes like okay i i guess i could have kind of inferred that but thank you for telling me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i've been talking about how this movie's homework and i know i sound like i'm begrudging the movie at times i'm really not i'm just being honest with what the movie is so then i it makes me ask myself do i recommend this movie yes but you should know what it is when you're going in. Mm-hmm. Do you recommend this movie? I do. And the reason I do is because I fully admit I am a very cynical person when it comes to cinema these days. It takes a certain amount of effort for even a trailer to impress me now. And then once I finally see the film, I'm often more disappointed than I am impressed and feel, feel like I, I saw even a four-star experience. And that's partially because I'm, I have very particular tastes that lean a little more old school. And we're not even talking that old. We're talking like 90s uh, that lean to more, more towards those sensibilities and those filmmaking styles. But it's also just a lot of film scripts these days are just stupid or they're lacking something that is so easy to implement if, if you know what you're doing. So I try to look outside the box all the time. And that's primarily why I love doing these marathons because it gives me a reason to research films and and go to all these other subgenres. So for when it comes to this kind of film, absolutely you need to see it because it goes against the grain. It is a documentary, but it's not even a standard documentary, you know? It's it's a it's an experience that ideally should be seen in a cinema too because oh, it's yeah. It's very broad cinematic camera shots of stuff in 1982. Yeah. If they had... I'm guessing this wasn't shot with an IMAX camera. There's no way in the world. But if it was, I would have loved to see it in an IMAX theater. But I don't want to see it artificially stretched. So if it's not meant for it, then don't. But um, in a theater would be quite a... Which is why I wish, you know, in film school... We'd watched this because at least we would have seen it in a screening room, which would have been a bigger experience to some extent. Right. So to wrap this up, I would say in terms of subject matter, unique, 
it is a time capsule. Presentation, as far as I understand it, the, the description that I gave about it being not only voyeuristic, but meant to detach you from what you're looking at so that you are highly objective, it did it, it managed to do unique things with the editing, having everything in reverse, having the music in reverse, having it ramped up and ramped down in speed. It further and further removes you from what you're watching so that it makes it directs you to have a specific experience. It's a, that's extremely clever. I've never seen a film do that for that purpose. You're right. That is extremely clever. I just, I simply add the caveat that you should know what it is before you're watching it. Um, and when I say know what it is, not like, oh, just have a rough idea what it is. Like, really. Well, that's funny because I don't think anytime I've ever heard someone talk about it, they never tell you it's in reverse. That's like a secret. No one lets you know. This is true. This is true. And it's not so much that is it's so much. The main thing, if I'm handing this to someone, if I handed them a DVD of it, I would say, here you go. This is really engaging, really fascinating. And if you want to make movies, it is necessary to watch. But guess what? It has no plot. Here you go. <laughs> That's all I tell them. I just tell them it has no plot. Yeah. Because then if they're like searching for it, which, or let's say they halfway through, they're watching it, they'll disengage because then it's like, oh, what is this? If you tell them right off the bat, this is amazing, but it has no plot. It's just going to be good for them to know that. Mm -hmm. And you say you're going to remember the moon. I'm probably always going to remember that fuselage. Yeah, no, I'll remember that too. <laughs> That's fair. All right. That was movie number one. Let's go to number two. For our next movie, we're going to talk about uh, a little documentary known as The Imposter. Uh, I bring up this one because this is actually the only movie I uh, suggested and somewhat insisted upon because I've actually been talking, I've mentioned this uh, documentary to Jonathan for quite a while and how insane it is. And I knew he had heard about it already, but it really it's one of those true stories that you just couldn't believe it, it's a story that is perfect for a documentary that's all i'll say uh di directed in 2012 by bart layton this was the first feature film by this director uh which is shocking when you think about it it's got such a uh, stark style Right from the get-go. Oh, yeah. Now, keep in mind, this isn't the first thing he made, but it was absolutely his first feature film. He did, like, a short, and he did something for uh, TV. I'm not quite clear what it was. But it's got such a concise style. It knows exactly what it is, what it wants to be, all of that. Fantastic documentary. Um, do you want to say anything else before I talk about the plot? Yeah, I did want to say I probably... Because I watch a lot of YouTube channels that are, are true crime exposés. There's um, Criminally Listed, another called Explore With Us. It's possible Rob Gavigan may have covered this on um, Twisted Tens, something like that. Mm. And um, I, I want to say I've seen three to four videos covering this story about 
the 23-year-old that passed himself off as a 16-year-old who was supposedly kidnapped, and that's how he got lost at 13. And the family, not realizing that this was not their son, their brother, and whatnot. But when you when you talk about it from uh, an informational standpoint and don't have like other sound bites and clips and context, you really don't get a full picture. This gives you that full picture because it the the imposter is literally in it, literally telling you the story from his perspective after he's out of jail. Oh yeah, that's the thing. This movie doesn't pretend. That's not the secret of the movie. You understand that pretty quickly, that he is faking. He's faking it, and the real secret later on is even weirder. <laughs> it just, it gets... I, I suppose we should say that um, there there are spoilers here. Oh yeah, we're gonna spoil it. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's only fair that if we want to properly talk about these, we might as well spoil them. You're right. Um, so if you if you, I would say don't ruin this for yourself if you want to see it. Because it, it's that sort of documentary that you, you want to have that fresh feeling going yeah. through it. This is one where the additional twist that I we haven't mentioned really will knock you on your feet. But it's really not until two-thirds of the way through the movie where it starts suggesting this. So, having said that, you've been warned. The twist is that it is suggested and strongly pointed at that the... Sorry, should we before we do that? Do did we make clear the plot of this of this movie? I think we do need to reiterate it. Okay. So, in the late 90s, a 13-year-old boy goes missing in Texas. They don't know what happened to him, just went out playing one day, never came no, back. No, he was at his his mom said he gave him 5 bucks to go somewhere. I don't know play where. Play basketball. Play basketball. Yeah. And then he needed to get driven home, but the brother didn't want to wake up the mother because she worked nights he, she worked nights so he told the brother told him to walk home walk home um and he never came back mm-hmm. so then the search is on they never find him that's it meanwhile three years later you have this man who is 23 years old he's a frenchman but he's currently in spain yes and he it's picked up by the police. Well, more specifically, because I'm we're gonna forget like hiding certain things. I'll just tell you as much as I can. He basically calls the police on himself. But when he calls, he pretends to be two tourists who spot this teenager who's like locked himself in a phone booth and seems very scared. Long story short, he gets himself picked up by the police and starts impersonating a missing teenager who won't talk to anybody. And it, it- He's not impersonating a specific teenager yet. He's just acting as if he is a lost foreigner teenager. Yeah. Who won't say a word. Because he basically explains that he hates his life. He has no love in his life. He had no childhood. So he wants a childhood. So he wants a new childhood, more specifically. So all he really wants is to be placed in some sort of foster care system to give himself a new life. At least that's what he says. That's all he wants. Yeah. Well, he says they they do that for a while, but they don't they don't accept that they have no identity on him. They need to know who he is in some sense. So, 
he basically lies to them and says that he is American, but he doesn't want to get the police involved. He wants to call and he he basically convinces these people to have the office for a night, which I never understood that. Uh, he asks to have the office for the night because if he's going to call home to America, they're on the other completely opposite end of the time zone. Oh, that's right. Because uh, it's nighttime there, it's daytime in America. That's right. So but- he says he convinces them somehow, still somehow, to, to let him stay in the office so that he can call up his family at the proper time of day. And they never suspect that he's going to raid their documents, look up someone online or no he calls he literally he calls several police departments in new york and new jersey i i think it was and then eventually was transferred so he called new york new jersey and la i think yeah um and they eventually put him in touch with the department of missing or exploited children in virginia so he talks to them and he basically just starts asking them in the most vague terms like, do you have any missing children who... <laughs> who fit this description? Because he, he, uh, he acts like he's a police detective in Spain looking over at himself as if he's this separate entity that is a 16-year-old boy. And he describes himself in vague terms to them to find any matches. Look, they're definitely American. You know, he's, he looks between maybe 15 or 16... He's Caucasian. He's you know skinny. He just, he gives super vague, very no specific details whatsoever, which would have probably helped him a little bit. But you know, no specific details. So they send. They're like, okay, well, maybe this will match up with somebody. And they literally look up a name and fax over, literally fax over a picture mm-hmm. of a kid. And if that was the real faxed picture, you can you can't even see the kid's nose. I don't know why that was supposed to work. No, it doesn't work at all. So basically, for the record, the missing child who is still missing to this day. Yes, that uh, that's what's so sad about it is that he is still missing. They never, they never found him. No one's ever found him. Yeah, and there's no solid evidence to any knowledge to where he is. Oh, that's right. Um, His name was Nicholas Barclay. Yeah, I was looking at that. That was the the kid's full name. Yeah. Basically, it was Nicholas Barclay. Um, so they send this black and white picture over of Nicholas Barclay over, and he decides, yep, that's that's who I'm going to be. That's who I'm going to be, because he went missing at 13, so he'd be, miss- he'd be 16 now. It adds up, so he says that's who it is. Long story short, um, they contact Nicholas's family and said, hey, we found your son. He's in Spain. Need I remind you? That this boy went missing in Texas. Yeah. So So the the what is it? The sister thinks Spain. Well, what part of Texas is that? Oh no, no, it wasn't Spain. It was the what was the name of the city? LaCroix. No, I don't want to say LaCroix. That's a trick. Um Start with an L. I I couldn't make out exactly what they said either. So it was some it was a town in Spain, and she said, Well, what part of Texas is that? Because Texas has a lot of small towns. Yeah. And they're like, No, that's in Spain. And it didn't make any sense. But at that point, the sister is just so focused on bringing her brother back. Um, and the, the mom doesn't go because they basically said the mom couldn't handle the trip. So 
Well, see, they they mobilize the FBI mobilizes a small force to go uh, interview him once he arrives in the states. But before that, he has to convince the um, Spanish, Spanish officials that he is this American, and he manages to. So he gets sent off on the plane. They fly back. Uh, once he's with the family for a couple of days, then the oh, FBI quick thing to comes point in. out. Turns out the actual missing child has bright blonde hair, and this guy, hair his hair's black basically. Yeah. So. Like, oh, that's right. So before he even meets the sister that comes to on the plane to to get him, he bleaches it. He bleaches it because he gets sent. He gets handed at some point. Uh, a file of the kid with a full color picture. Yeah. So then he literally gets a passport. And this is when, like, you see what he looked like at the time when he did this. Yeah, you finally see actual pictures of what he looked like when he had the blonde hair passing himself off at the time. Yeah. And he looks nothing like the kid at all. Or nothing like the kid would look like at 16. Not, yeah, not enough. I felt... I he did had, feel that he had, he had the same aftershave. Or not yes. aftershave. He had a little bit of a stubble. I felt the only two things that looked similar were okay, he has a similar nose and he has a gap in his teeth that are very similar to the 13-year-old kid's teeth. But it it had this he had the same smile. They even point out that he smiled like what his uncle or his grandfather. Yeah. But everything else was wrong. Yeah. Say, wrong head shape. The kid's head would have been a lot taller, a lot skinnier, more like slender on the chin. This guy had a boxy head. Yeah. Looked nothing like him. So comes to America and he pulls it off and he gets to have a childhood summer, basically. Yeah. Four, four months. Well, so three months of a summer and then the, he literally goes to school. He goes to high school for a month. For a month. Fully. And that is when things start to unwind for him. Because there's a private investigator who... How did he get connected in all of this? He had just heard through the grapevine that this, uh, this kid that had been lost three or four years ago surfaced again in Spain. He had heard through the, the rumor mill about it. And he thought, well, that's really weird. I need to ask people about this. Okay. So he was just inquisitive. Yeah. So, Which you, you would expect a private investigator to be, I suppose. Oh, and of course, we forgot. The FBI interviewed this imposter and totally bought his completely made-up story about child uh, sec a child sex ring. Like, no joke, the story he gave kind of sounded a little like QAnon. It was hilarious. It was weird. Yeah. Years before this whole thing ever happened. And the FBI interviewer buys it. Because she, and she was weird too, because yeah. she, she can't, somehow she can't buy that this guy's story can't be fake. She, she buys it because she can't believe it can't, it could possibly be fake because of how many gritty details he gives. But at the same time, she also can't believe that a grieving family that really wants their their son and their brother back so badly could be convinced by an imposter. Yeah, you would think people who make a living out of undercover operations, we where you have to have a detailed cover story, yeah, would have some it. inkling that, yeah, you can make this up. So then 
finally, this is where the twist comes in. They decide they're going to send the imposter to a, he was basically a therapist, to discuss the abuse he went through. Yeah. So that they could learn more and possibly find who did this. They were legitimately trying to investigate this. So the guy interviews this imposter and instantly figures out that there's no way this is the kid as well. He instantly realizes. He contacts the FBI agent. They tell her. And he, she's like, oh my God, what do we do? So she contacts the sister and says, hey, listen. Because, oh, it should be established. They flew the boy to Dallas, Texas to have this done. Yeah, a couple of... Uh, uh was it a couple hundred miles away? Yeah. In, in terms of Texas state size. Yeah. But Texas is a huge state, so they had to fly. They yeah. had to fly. So he calls the sister up and says, this is not your brother. This is a man who has faked it. It is not real. Um, and the sister basically had a panic attack, panic attack over the phone. Freaked out, lost her mind. And the agent says, don't worry. Just don't show up at the airport. We'll take him from here. We're going to take him back, convince him he's on his way home, and then we'll just, we'll, we'll arrest him. That's all. So, all of a sudden, they land, and the sister's there. And the sister acts like the phone call never happened. And that sends chills up your spine. Well, what, what she actually says is, I, I don't remember her saying it like that. Oh, yeah. In the, oh, yeah. Of course, they're interviewing everybody. And she's like, well, she didn't put it in those words exactly. And I took that to mean that, okay, if I'm going to give her the benefit of, of the doubt, I took it to mean that she interpreted the FBI agent's words as, he's, he's not the brother you used to know. He's far more gone than we thought. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she then goes into don't come to the airport yeah. and the sister somehow completely blocks that part out unless she was like uh, screaming or, or freaking out so loud in the phone that she completely didn't hear that. Or she was that's where I, I lose it as well. Yeah, but it's still it's weird. So this is when the imposter starts to realize that he's not maybe as good at fooling as he thought he was. <laughs> and he then realizes, wait, oh, the family's known the entire time, or at least he's convinced of that. Yeah. So he then, claims yeah, he at claims. this point, if we want to even give him all the benefit of the doubt, he, he claims that he realized that they're all in on the game. Yeah. And then he starts trying to wonder, why? Why, why would they embrace me like this? And the only conclusion he reached was that they're tr that they killed their son, that they killed him, and that they had to do this so that there wouldn't be any suspicion on them. And that's where things get really, really weird. Um, I don't want to say he turns himself in, but the private investigator starts tracking him yeah. and he interviews him. And he says, well, it's good to finally meet you, Nicholas. And he says, I'm not Nicholas and you know it. He says this in public. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into this whole investigation where basically, of course, the guy's arrested. But then while he's arrested, he basically says, no, this family killed this kid. I have no doubt in my mind. So then there's an investigation on the family. Um, but nothing comes up with the family because there wasn't enough evidence. Right. Um, but the movie basically ends with the guy spending six years in jail or six years in prison in America, then being sent back to France, where you then learn that this guy has imitated like 
how many? Im- impersonated more than 30 people in the span of seven years. All teenagers. All teenagers. Yes. So he's not credible and neither is the family. And the reason why the family isn't credible, unfortunately, in either direction is you're watching it and it's like, how could you buy that this was your child or your brother? When the stark, look it up, the differences in look, they're not similar in the slightest. It's like, it's either a delusion or they genuinely were faking it too. It's one or the other. So, point is, the entire movie just sends a chill up your spine because at the end of the day, it's like, you don't know who to believe by the end of it. Anyways, having said all that, I love this documentary because it's just such an amazing story. And it's, by the way, it's really well shot because they, they, like a lot of documentaries these days, they recreate certain moments, but it's the recreations are done very well. Yes. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. What did you think, Jonathan? Um, yeah, I was struck by the color grading on everything. I think somehow either they color graded the uh, archival VHS footage and the film reel footage or newsreel footage uh, to make it match what they were doing with the interview footage, or it was vice versa. I don't know which it was, but it had this uh, unsettling, warm glow to everything. And they, you know, they did that thing where they held on the faces of the family too long sometimes, especially the mother, who would kind of look off to the side a lot, like, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. The only times those really worked though were with the imposter because then he would, he there's, he was very emotive and expressive. Mm-hmm. So he would give a lot to the camera. Yeah. But he was also hamming it up, you could tell. Yes, you could. Like he was, he was loving that there was a documentary about him. Oh, I'm sure. Like he loves this. Yes. Like he was eating it up. In terms of subject matter, fantastic. Great to see this covered. In terms of style, yes. I also really appreciate documentaries that put time and effort into their production style, even though at the same time, I understand that what you could call true documentaries are not, they don't care about style. They're not supposed to. The thing with this is, as I've learned, this is in the vein of The Thin Blue Line, which was the first to do this approach to a documentary, where you have the interviews, you have the recreations, and you have really nice cinematography all throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is imitating off of that mold, yeah. which most other documentaries these days do. It is this yeah. this approach, this style. And for those of you who haven't seen The Thin Blue Line, it is a necessary documentary. It's very good. So, I, as I'm sure you noticed, I recommend this documentary to anybody I can. I think it's just such a, it's such a well-made documentary. It's so strange. It's just never what you could expect. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10 in my book. Moving on to film number three. <laughs> Into the Inferno was our third film. And this was one I saw, I believe, um, the year it came out in, was it 2016? Yes. Okay. So I'm pretty sure I saw it the year it came out on Netflix. 
And previously, I had only seen Encounters at the Far Edge of the World, I think it's called. That's Werner Herzog's uh, Antarctica film. And that particular film was not what I expected at all, but I was mesmerized by it. I really liked the way Werner approached not only his overall subject matter, but the people in that place, um, speaking with individuals who are in this location, in this element. And you, you don't just want to learn about what they do in that space, but you want to learn about their personal interests. He wants to learn about their habits and their overall personality and just get a glimpse of themselves on camera, capture a, a bit of their... You, you could say a bit of their spirit in this moment. Mm -hmm. And that's a great approach to documentary filmmaking that I've yet to see other documentarians really do oh, yeah. to get on that personal level and to, to not, uh, to, to be unbiased and, uh, non-judgmental mm -hmm. about anything that they say, you know, don't, don't criticize them. Don't go in with expectations don't make it obvious if you find their words or their beliefs strange. Just let them say what they say mm -hmm. and engage with it. Uh, and that's exactly what Into the Inferno does, just like Encounters did. And I was especially struck, not just by that, but by the stunning, arresting, awe-inspiring new and old footage mm -hmm of volcanoes mm -hmm. like compared to the vast incredible scales that you see out in the cosmos which i am eternally impressed and awed by volcanoes are an equivalent on earth in terms of if you're standing that close to one where you can see the lava flows or you're standing on the rim of a volcano and you're staring down into it and you can feel the heat from dozens and hundreds of yards away, I don't think there's anything else on Earth that manages to freak you out and impress you that much. Yeah. It should also be made clear that really, while it is about volcanoes, it's more specifically about extremely volatile and active ones and even more specifically than that it's about the only three volcanoes in the world where you if you go to the top and look down you will see magma you will see lava yeah you'll see it literally bubbling over the surface constantly shifting and changing and that is so first of all this movie was beautiful like visually right off the bat just looking into the depths of those volcanoes, it was like you just were looking at something that was kind of greater than yourself at times. Like, you understand, like, this movie talks about at one point there are, like, religions around these volcanoes. And, like, you actually understand why that happens. It's yeah. like, why wouldn't someone do that? That you're literally looking at something that's so much more vast than you, at something that's so much more vast than you, that you would form a religion around it. And these, these, are, these are ancient religions in some cases that have continued to this day, but I think many of the ones we saw are current religions. They're not even that old. Some of them are very new. What was the one about the soldier? Um, Gus something? Gus Johnson? John Thum. John Thum. Okay. 
basically this tribe had formed a religion about a soldier that came down from a volcano um, mysteriously and they believed that he was going to bring gifts soon from America and it's a full on religion about it and this documentary covers that which by the way that whole thing is a documentary in, in of itself it absolutely needs to be actually this is the thing about this movie it had like two or three documentaries or two or three subjects that could have been their own documentaries right but we're in this one and it didn't you, you weren't annoyed by it you were fascinated by it it's how what drew you in more like this wasn't an active volcano but one of the places he visited was an old long dormant volcano in north korea and it had actually become a lake and he spends so much time in north korea and how the that volcano influenced not just the culture but the regime and the power structure of that country that he yeah, almost they, they build their the the origin of their leader yeah but i thought it was also part of their creation myth yes it's basically they believe the korean people were birthed from this volcano and that apparently is shared among north and south koreans that like the myth, at least, yeah, so to speak, that this is where the story. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure in South Korea it's less believed to be true, right? If I were to guess, but still, that that story states that that is where it come. They all came from. So, but in North Korea, it is genuinely to be believed, um, and because of that, the Kim family uses it as a focal point for their power structure, mm-hmm. and you see how they use it. Now, what's interesting is. It's almost like Herzog can't help but go further into the country of North Korea and talk about more things. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, in each place that he goes to, he, he gets a little off topic. Yeah, but it works. It does work. Yeah. And I think I, I almost want to say that his his section on North Korea is the only spot where he openly makes it clear that they're not going to tell us a personal story they're going to regurgitate the uh, political propaganda. But yes, that's exactly what he says. Not in front of them because for obvious reasons. Yeah. But in narration, he like there's actually a moment where he asks an extremely personal question of this volcano volcanologist. Volcanologist. Yeah. People who study volcanoes, not people the, who study Vulcans in <laughs> Star Trek, but volcanoes. The reason I should say that. He, Werner even got to go to North Korea is because he was uh, he made friends with a volcanologist from his encounters film in Antarctica because there was a volcano section that of the film that he had put together and then he brought that volcanologist with him to make this film and because North Korea had made a, a scientific agreement to have their volcanology team uh, team up with Cambridge University yeah. They agreed to have scientists come in from America and from, I guess, Britain as yeah, well. England, yeah. And so Werner was at that moment able to come along for the ride with yeah. for a unique opportunity. Yes. And he went. And I... So my two favorite parts of the documentary were both that and learning about the two French photographers who got insanely close to volcanoes. Yeah. I, I would say... That's the most impressive footage in the film is what those two people shot yeah. decades ago. Yeah, because they literally, well, they, they died from it. They died when a volcano exploded and it killed them. And it wasn't lava. It was what was called um, 
pyroclastic ash flow. Yeah. Which, let's be clear, horrible way to go. Yes, it is 800 degree ash avalanche. It's clouds of superheated ash billowing towards you at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. So he, they got Pompeyed real quick. Yes. Bad. Yes. Horrible. But there's literally shots of the wife and husband just like hop skipping around right the, next to the these lava rivers. fields. Yeah. Right next to these lava river fields. And you're looking at them like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? But the footage is undeniably incredible that they captured. And there's my favorite one is when the husband's just strutting along and then the volcano just pops like a zit <laughs> and he doesn't run. He just turns around and kind of walks quickly away. Like he's clearly a little nervous, but not nervous enough to run. Yeah. He just like quickly takes a quick pace away and it's ridiculous looking. It's also uh, there was another spot that was from Encounters where a guy is describing about uh, how you, you, you shouldn't uh, look away from the volcano when you're on the lip of it. You should always stare towards it so that in case an ash piece flies in the air, you can dodge it. That, to me, was the funniest, craziest thing. <laughs> that tells me he has done that before. Yeah. Which is the best thing ever. Men walks up a mountain. Men stares into mountain. Man tries to avoid ash bomb from melting into his frontal lobe. <laughs> also, for the record, very daring of Werner to stand at the lip of an active volcano. Like, my God. Like, as cool as that is, I would be on my stomach, like looking down with my head over, not on two feet. I would be terrified that one loose pebble, I slip, I'm done. Yeah. That's it. There's no getting out. You're done if that happens. But yeah, those two moments really were set apart. Like, they were great. They were really powerful. Um, visually stunning. Very personal. And of the three, now this is the third of his I've seen. It is just a hair under Grizzly Man for me. Just a hair. But fantastic movie. I did see Grizzly Man as well. I think... Um because of the subject matter and because I, I didn't quite find it as fascinating of a story as I'm sure everyone else might, because I understand why it's fascinating, but it wasn't gripping me as much as I suppose I would want it to. The whole fact that he, he got mauled by the bears he was so passionate about, the, the, the guy that that film is about, mm -hmm. that's horrifying. Yeah. But anyways... That's really all my thoughts on Into the Inferno. I loved it, of course, but... I want to say I loved it more the second time. Really? Um, yeah, and I would recommend it to anybody, even if you never watch another Werner Herzog documentary or any of his narrative films, because I've only seen his uh, remake of Nosferatu, and it does make me wonder what his other narrative films are like, but if you never see any other films he's ever made this is the one you should see. And it might convince you to try some of the others. That's true. And also, this is the most accessible, both as yeah. a story and as far as its availability, because it's on Netflix. And it's it a always... Netflix original. Yeah. They funded it. So yeah. it's always going to be there. Yeah, it's never going anywhere.
Electric Boogaloo, the untold story of Canon Films. This movie took me for a wild ride, and I absolutely loved it. I had no idea about any of this. I knew these movies, some of these movies existed, but I had no idea that this same production company made, like, what, over 200 movies? In a it very wasn't sh- 200. They had the whole list in the credits, and it... I think it was nearly 100, if not more. Nearly 100 in the span of, like, what? Seven years. Seven years. Now, that's... They had... Canon films existed earlier. Yes. They made other films earlier. Then when uh, Menachem Golem and uh, Yoram Globus Mm -hmm. bought the company after um, coming to America from Israel... They had the company from, what, 1979 to 87, and then it died out? Yeah, pretty much. But basically, think of all the kind of trashy action 80s movies. They're responsible for about a quarter of them. Maybe, actually, no, a third at this point. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say a third is probably accurate. Yeah. The other, well... Third, in terms of uh, professional quality, because you had so many, uh, I wouldn't even call them backyard films, but it's like even lower budget schlocky direct-to-VHS movies. With some form of theatrical release? With some form of, yeah, they were all theatrically released. Not always in the United States, but... Right. I don't think any of them were straight-to-video. No. Yeah, nothing went straight-to-video of theirs. So they were all put on video eventually. Yes. Like all things were in the 80s. But yeah, the so that means a third of any of these schlocky action movies that went straight that went to theaters, they were responsible for. And what was nuts is like how the hell do you cram a hundred plus movies in seven years for two guys with a small company that is rapidly growing, but it it's it's like it is a snowball effect where we're going to fund this movie now. We're going to fund three more movies. And I don't know how they pulled the crews together. I don't know how they pulled the actors together. Like, how do you get full film crews set up in mere weeks? No concept. No idea. Um, also, conveniently, I have a little bit of a personal connection to this. Uh, well, we... No, I wouldn't say personal. I have one small degree of connection to this. As I'm watching this... I suddenly see one of my film professors pop up on this. Yeah, from SCAD. From SCAD. From the Savannah College of Art and Design. Where we both went. This was my TV pilot writing professor. I find out this guy like wrote three of their films and directed one of them. And he prefaced... <laughs> what was funny is every time there was one of these, he would preface it by saying, it never turned... They, they ruined my script. Like he would preface it by saying yeah. that. Like he was it was never supposed to have uh, this nudity scene in it. It was never supposed to be this bloody or something like yeah. that. He would always open it with that. And then with the one he did direct, it was like, oh, every time I tell that to people, they, th- they actually they think it's a cool idea. They like it. Yeah. And so uh, he, like, he fully owns the things he made uh, for the record. And this is for full credit. His name is uh, David Engelbach. Great writer, fantastic teacher, taught me a lot. But when I saw him in there, I was like, no, it freaked me out for a bit. 
But I looked up as an, on his IMDb, and that that's where he had his connections. He worked with them for basically the entire time that they were in charge. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of an amazing thing to witness to see him <laughs> have that connection there. And I was like, hey, hey, Professor Engelbach, I wanted to say through the TV <laughs> while watching it. Um, I also looked it up afterwards. He he wrote uh, one episode one episode of MacGyver. Ah. So he did that as well, which is awesome. Um, him being in that was kind of cool. But seeing these two directors, well, these, these two br- friends make these ridiculous movies over the course of seven years was just a, a fantastic experience. Absolutely fantastic. When And when we, in reality, you maybe have only heard of five of the movies they've made. Yeah, you, you would have heard of the Death Wish series, which the first film was not made by them. They made all the sequels. Yes. Uh, they were responsible for Superman 4. Yeah, I don't think they did 3. Oh, yeah. But yeah, responsible for 4, which is considered the worst one. Widely believed. Yes. Um, and then they also did, of course, Masters of the Universe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was that. That might even be their most high-profile, memorable thing because so many families and kids would have seen it. Yes. And they, just like Roger Corman, they tried to make a maybe a few family films, but Roger or, made a few, made more, and made better ones. Yes. Um, they also did. They were responsible for. Oh sh! That's something we we can't forget. Is that if they're making all of those action films, we can't forget about Roger Corman producing so many other action films with his company. No, we can't. We cannot. That'll be a subject for another time. And they're probably Roger's stuff is on a lower tier because I don't think his got theatrical releases very no, much. Very rarely. Um, the only thing I was gonna also mention is they were also responsible. For to date, they created the highest grossing movie in Israel called Lemon Popsicle, which they later also adapted to an American movie called The Last American Virgin, which, contrary to what most people know, actually has a very large, a somewhat large cult following because it's considered so ridiculous, but it is also considered to have some very heavy themes for this teen sex comedy. And it's I got to say, out of the sex comedies I'm aware of, because I haven't seen many, this is the most gratuitous. Yeah, it's very intense, very gratuitous. Like, Um, this is worse than what I expected Porky's to look like. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It's... It's very intense and gratuitous, but it's it's genuinely a movie that people were shocked existed in America. But it did. And I can even understand why they made it, because it was like, oh, well, it did great in Israel. Why won't we do why don't we do the same thing? It just doesn't translate the same. Yeah, there's certain uh, iconography, cultural concepts, and um I I I guess maybe even the themes that might not translate one to one. Yeah. Where it just doesn't work like Certain comedic things, I guess, just didn't quite work. But there was another semi-big movie there. Oh, they basically made Chuck Norris's career. Yeah. Um, he, he had a handful of films earlier on, but this, these are the ones that made his name famous. And they paid, um, they paid Sylvester Stallone more money than most <laughs> people ever have in their life. What was the estimated yeah, we, number? We, well, each person was given a different number. Yeah. They said 12, 15, 20, 25, because Menachem really wanted to have Sylvester 
do this movie called Over the Top about the arm wrestling. Yeah. And so somehow they ended up, maybe, I don't know for sure, we'd have to look at if there's an official listing, but they potentially paid him $35 million to do this. To do this. And that is potentially why Sylvester is so expensive to pay these days because these guys paid him that much. Yeah. Um, except, I guess, for the the time he did Spy Kids 3D because I don't think Robert would have been able to pay him $35 million. No. And that, I don't think he's paid $35 million every time. I doubt that. No. I very much doubt that. Um, but it did raise, I'm sure it raised the price he, he charges. Yeah. Because I've heard that he's the most expensive actor in Hollywood, or at least he was when he did The Expendables. Yes, he was very expensive for that. Point is, but there's another movie that they did that was pretty big. Uh, it's, it's the Breakin' Films. Oh yes, because it's right. called electric. This is called Electric Boogaloo as, as for the namesake, yeah. but the the Breakin' One and Breakin' Two Electric Boogaloo apparently were cultural touchstones at at that singular moment. Well, specifically the first one, apparently the first one. Um, it was like this big, big, big moment with teenagers of the day. Yes, so that was very big at the time, and it's I'm sure it's their biggest box office success. That's it, very possible. It made like what, sixty-five million? Fifty-six. Fifty-seven. Okay. I think they made it for five. Mid, they oh yeah, they made it for like five million. It made fifty-six million. It made a crazy amount of money compared to how little they spent. Yeah. And then they even love to point out like the two times they made good movies, and I actually kind of want to see both of them. <laughs> I'm very curious. One was a, a Tello. Apparently, that's pretty good. It was. It was a, a moment where they. I guess in like 85, they were deciding, okay, we've got to start courting these uh, these directors that aren't getting funding and like sign-offs from producers for their ideas. They're just getting left on the side. So we're going to give them the money they need and fund these passion projects. Which admittedly is smart. I can see the reason for that. Because if you happen to land, if one of those passion projects happens to be gold, then go for it. But it was... Atello, and then what? And I'm not saying Othello wrong. The movie was literally called Atello. Yeah, it, it skips the H, but I'm assuming it is that play. Yeah, I think it is. And then there was that other one. Well, there were two other weird ones. One was the one that's like an escape on a train or something. Oh, yeah. I don't know how I would look up the name of that. I'll look it up later. But apparently, that movie is like very good. For some reason, yeah, it it it's there's a lot of footage of a train traveling through snowy wilderness. Was it high speed getaway, something like that? It's that sounds right. Um, and then the only other thing, what was that weird movie they did about the alien vampires? Um, Life Force. Life Force. Which I've actually seen. Oh. I went out of my way to see that one. Is it as weird as it looks? So. Uh, yeah, it's like a it's like a hybrid American and British cast. There's a group of uh, astronauts that go up into space to f uh, see this alien ship that's like dormant, floating into our solar system. Mm -hmm. They go into it and they find vamp they they find aliens that are humanoids in crystalline cases, uh, hanging from the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And when they're in that room with them, in their presence, they feel drawn towards these creatures, like not necessarily sexually, but just 
they they can't help but want to help them and bring them back to Earth. Mm-hmm. So they do, but then the creatures get loose in the ship and they they suck the life out of all the people on board except yeah. for one guy yeah. who I think he makes it back to Earth and reports back what the hell happened. Mm. And then the vampire lady starts uh, wreaking havoc. On Earth. On Earth. Yeah. Uh, it's also Patrick Stewart's first film. Is it really? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Didn't know that. Wow. Um, point is, this company blew up fast, but they became known as like the scam artists, kind of. Well, not scam artists. Not scam artists. They were the schlockmeisters. Schlockmeisters, that's right. They were the schlockmeisters who would just make these awful movies, but they would turn a profit. Right. They would they would they would uh make so many movies that they would get benefits from the ones that were successes and they would write off the other ones as losses. And it was this thing where literally they would Menachem Golem would come up with an idea off the top of his head and then have someone spin it into a script in a couple of days and they would start shooting in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Like every month of every year. Yeah, constantly. They just would release and then they literally started not just making these movies but they would go to Europe and they and England and they started buying up movie chains. Yeah, at, at if you are at all familiar with the story of um Ben-Hur's production or Star Wars's production, you know the name Elstree Studios. It is uh, very distinctive. Or no, wasn't... I think Ben-Hur was Chinachita. But there's... Uh, I think Elstree was where some Bond films were... or Maybe several Bond films were filmed at. But they bought Elstree Studios, for goodness sake. Yeah. How the they, hell did they buy that? They owned the majority of movie theaters in England at one point. Just yeah, England, it was, or no, just England, not not Great Britain as a whole, but just England specifically, that section. Um, they own like the majority of them, and in, they own a ton in Italy too, apparently. Mm-hmm. But they basically would just automatically release their movies there if they had to. Right. Uh, or, and that would gain wider, and the popular ones, the good ones, or the ones people liked, would gain wider uh, release. And that's just what they would do. And they started courting the Cannes Film Festival oh, as yeah. well. Like, but, why would Cannes want these schlocky action films? But they would go to Cannes just to like as, as like a sales convention. That's how they were trying. Oh, so yeah, so they weren't actually trying to submit their films there. They were trying to court um, well, financiers. No, yes, but they would always try to get a film of theirs in so they could do it. Okay. They wanted one of their films in, and they managed to somehow do it. I don't know how. Do we know which ones actually got in? I don't think they said so. I feel like that wasn't clear. So I couldn't No, tell. I don't think it was. Um, but my understanding was that that's why they were always desperate. It's like, this one's going to Cannes. This one's going to Cannes. Um, oh, the other big movie they kind of did was um, Syriana? Sahara. So- oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Sometimes you really lose these names. I do. Sahara, which got remade in the early 2000s. Syriana. What the hell is Syriana? Now, do you know for certain that it's the same story? It's about a race throughout the Middle East. Okay. Like a crazy race. So, yeah. So, it's it's like a Death Race 2000 situation. Yep, pretty much. Um, so, it's interesting that that, of all things, was remade, but hey. Um, I would say, knowing what a lot of these films looked like, I want to see the Ninja Trilogy, mm. which is... 
Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, and Ninja 3 The Domination. That's my favorite title ever. <laughs> Ninja 3 The Domination. God. I, I have to see those at some point. And then I have to see the Alan Quartermain films. And there's a, there's got to be a I'm handful of others. I'm curious about Master of the Universe, I'll admit. I probably should see that. Yeah. Because yeah. it's on Netflix still. It's still sitting up there. Um. Along Invaders from series. Mars oh, was yeah. probably worth it. I got, probably should see the original and that remake. Yeah, I am curious about the train one because it did look like a good movie for what it was. Mm-hmm. Like it looked like it had good acting. Actually, I was like, oh well. Um, oh wait, what was the one where they got um, Vincent Price in it? Um, oh, the House of the Long Shadows. Yes, that looks like fun. I think that's on Amazon Prime because it's it's one of several films that all like either. Two of those guys or all three of them kept doing near the end of their lives when they're in their 70s. Yeah. Because I think, what is it? Um, several years before that, it was Basil Rathbone and John Carradine show up in a film called uh, Hillbillies in a Haunted House. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> poor Basil Rathbone is in... Is is like it turned into a horror icon when I don't think he ever was at first. Nah, like, why is he all, in all of these bad B horror movies? They 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 wanted to pay him. Um. Oh, and of course. Oh, that's the other movie they were known for, the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Yeah. Which ended up being a disaster because the director decided to make it funny. Which is what's weird. Like you start out making a film that unsettling that raw yeah then you make poltergeist which is more in line with a steven spielberg movie well often people consider it as people wonder who directed that movie more yeah i could see why and it's hot debate either way and then he turns around and starts making horror comedies yeah you don't expect that no you don't associate that with toby hooper everyone always associates him with his first two films, yeah. you kind of forget the, the garbage later, yeah. but it's fun garbage, surely. Yeah, but it's not what the, the company needed at the moment because they were yeah. they realized they needed a big hit. So they're like, oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, that'll be huge. And then they let him do whatever he wants because what could go wrong? Turns out he wanted to make it a comedy. and It's more like a Robert Rodriguez movie before Robert was making films. <laughs> actually, kind of, yeah. And it, it did not help them. It was bad. Mm. And I actually feel bad for them in that case because it's like they made all the right choices as far as what could be a box office smash. Right. It's like, let's bank on a huge franchise uh, that we're willing to go on. And nope, just creative choices happened. I also want to point out, uh, I mentioned Roger Corman earlier as his own, like, movie production house just knocking things out mm-hmm. buying stuff from foreign markets and dubbing it over and adding scenes yeah you also had this guy named andy sedaris who made um i want to say it was either 10 films or 12 films throughout the 80s and 90s very similar in vain to canon but i'd say even more fun and very consistent every film had kind of the same thing going on. They're like lengthy episodes of an ongoing TV series, hmm. all starring Playboy models, and 
beefcakes that surely must have been pulled from a Chippendales or they're pulled <laughs> from bodybuilding contests. So it it's um it's sex appeal for both genders. It's very even-handed, I would say. Pretty much. And it's pure action, some comedy, but all kinds of fun. I have not watched a single one that I thought that sucked. I have my favorites. I've seen about five so far of the of the 10 or 12 that he made. Uh, the one you and I saw uh, last time was Guns. Guns. What a name. Guns. <laughs> just, just Guns in big, bold letters. And yeah, I don't... Th- for me, if I was going to say it, what a popcorn film is for me, Andy Sedaris's movies are popcorn films. You cannot not have fun watching these. Oh, they're ridiculous. So coming back to the documentary, uh, I guess... Technically speaking, my only gripe is that it felt like it wound down and slowed and you got just a lot of repetition from everybody talking about how schlocky the films were and how and giving different names to these two producers. Oh yeah. And what um, was my fa- my favorite was, um, was Mayhem it? and Urine. May- <laughs> <laughs> Mayhem and Urine. For, that's horrible. <laughs> Mayhem and Urine. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's yeah, so wrong. you you got maybe um, twenty five different people who used to work with them. You got a music coordinator, or I think he was a composer. All of you them had se- at least one bad thing to say. Yeah, several writers, several other like associate producers and directors. Um, maybe a casting director in there. The you had Richard. The actresses all hated him. It's yeah, them. All the actresses they 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 either had uh, unkind things to say or they had like. Yeah, he was. It was really weird. I don't know what else to say. It was just. I was really young weird. and stupid. They all said I was young and stupid. Yeah. It's like they all said, "God, I was dumb for doing that." But yeah. You had um, Richard Edlund, who did the special effects for Ghostbusters, right? Uh, and the first Star Wars movie. He was there because I think he did the visual effects for the Toby Hooper films, mm. um, Life Force and Invaders from Mars. Mm. Is there anything else you want to add to this one? Yeah, I highly I get, recommend uh, it. But yeah. So going further off of that, it was a fascinating enough documentary that I in terms of recommendation, I don't know if I would recommend this one unfortunately because it it starts out good and then it just keeps repeating itself and you keep just seeing more and more films across the the decade there. I felt like they could have uh, tightened up the sequence better so that you're not getting a new year and new films to talk about, but then the same commentary every moment. Hmm. I think the editing could have been done better and some of the clips of the interviews could have been flowed out a little better. So generally speaking, if you want to learn about this, it might even be better just to read a, uh, an article about it and then watch uh, a playlist of all the movie trailers. Hmm. Interesting. I gotta say, I recommend this highly. Um, It actually reminded me of a documentary I saw recently about the Sparks Brothers, which I think you would love, um, directed by um, Edgar Wright. 
He directed this documentary. And it's very similar where it's just kind of one thing they do after another. It's just like, oh, it was one movie, then they did this movie, then they did this movie. And it's like, if you want a comprehensive timeline of everything that they did, look no further. And like, you know, you can have an article about it, sure, but you can have a movie about it too. And it works, in my opinion. And in terms of do I think this... I guess in terms of do I think this will convince you to watch canon films? Yes. That's true. This is the greatest advertisement for them ever. If if you're the type of film goer that even is willing to watch this documentary, then clearly you have some curiosity of these 80s B movies. And I certainly do. I have not seen nearly enough of them. So I I again, I personally want to see the Ninja trilogy. I want to see Alan Quartermain. I want to see the Toby Hooper film, uh, Invaders from Mars, and a couple of others, a handful of others in there. I, I probably even need to see Breakin', to be honest. I want to see... I'm curious about Breakin'. I want to see Otello, and I want to see the train one. I got to just look up what that was called. I can't for the life of me. can't remember. I think it was... I feel like it was called Runaway Escape or something. <laughs> yeah. But I could be very wrong. But those are the three that like see. Oh, oh I'm sorry, uh, uh, Masters of the Masters of the Universe. I'm very curious. Mm-hmm. Morbidly so, because Franklin Jellis says that was one of his favorite performances. Unironically, really. Uh huh. Wow. And I can see why he gets to choose scenery more than any other film he's been in. That's true. But point is, quite a quite a fascinating documentary to say the least. Like, I don't regret seeing it. No, I don't think I do either. It's it's just I I don't know if I would recommend it on a on like will, will this keep your interest the whole time probably but it it's more like a two and a half star out of five for me mm-hmm. like it's an iffy but yeah it, it, even then I think it would convince you if you weren't already convinced to eventually try f- seeking out these films mm-hmm. and we may even need to do a whole mar- uh, marathon just on these I think I think we might. I think we will. But that'll be for next time. All right. On to movie number five. You've been listening to Framin' the Shot, produced and hosted by Jonathan Leiter, a.k.a. Filmmaker J, and co-hosted by Cotton Chivarelli. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and giving our show a try. If you have any suggestions of topics you'd like to see us cover on the show, please be sure to follow us and leave a comment on your favorite podcasting app or tweet us at F-R-A-M-I-N, The Shot, over on our Twitter page. The goal for this show has always been to explore specific subjects, unique areas, and case studies about film production in order to get to the heart of what makes a truly great movie experience. And I see no shortage anytime soon in the topics we could cover. But that's it for this week, everybody. We'll catch you next time.